why shouldn't they dream big, right? If you're going to dream, you may as well make it a big dream. And then you're likely to accomplish more because you're going to do more to make your dream happen. And you'll at least, if you don't reach the moon, at least you're going to get closer to it. And why not? Because that's when it gets fun, when you're not just going through motions, but when you're really creating something that makes an impact. Hello, hello. How are you doing today? This is Hannah and I welcome you to another episode of Reaching Your Goals. Reaching Your Goals is a career-focused podcast where I sit down with truly inspiring individuals and we talk about leadership and career-related topics to give you the insights to get one step closer to living a fulfilled professional life. We all have goals we want to reach, but sometimes we just need those insights, those nuggets that help us moving. And that's why we are here today. And depending on the day, I'm either a certified leadership and executive coach or a management consultant, and I have an MBA from NYU Stern School of Business. My mission is to inspire you to reach your goals, lead with kindness, and have some fun along the way. I'm very excited for our episode today. My guest is Liz Elting. Before I tell you more about Liz, let me quickly check in with you. Have you already left five stars in a really nice review in Apple Podcasts? If not, why not do so today? And if you are already on it, could you also tell your friends about it? You know, help me spread the word. Thank you. Okay, that's enough about that. Let me go back to Liz, because that was a truly inspiring CEO conversation. So Liz is the founder and CEO of the Elizabeth Alting Foundation. She is an entrepreneur, business leader, lingua feel, philanthropist, feminist and mother. After living, studying and working in five countries across the globe, Liz founded Transperfect out of an NYU dorm room in 1992 and served as co-CEO until 2018. Transperfect is the world's largest language solutions company with over $1.1 billion in revenue and offices in more than 100 cities worldwide. Liz received numerous awards, including the American Heart Association's 2022 Woman Changing the World Award and has been named Forbes' richest self-made woman every year since the list's inception. This is also the author of the upcoming book, Dream Big and Win, translating passion into purpose and creating a billion-dollar business. Let me also share my connection to Liz with you. In my intro, I share with you every week that I got my MBA at NYU Stern and so did Liz. She actually gave Stern a $5 million gift to establish the Elizabeth Alting Advancing Women's Leadership Fellowship and the Elizabeth Alting Venture Fund. I read about her generosity, the largest gift from a self-made woman in the school's history in a stern communication and got very intrigued about this wonderful lady and asked her to join me on the show. What I find so inspirational about Liz is that she not only became hugely successful as an entrepreneur, but that she is using her fame, her money, and most importantly, her time to fight for a cause, which is to advance the economic, social, and political equality of women and marginalized people. What a role model. Oh, I feel so honored to have Liz with me today. 
Liz, thank you for joining me. I'm excited for our conversation and really want to jump in now. How are you doing today? Oh, thank you so much, Hannah. I so appreciate that beautiful intro. You, I love how you said it. You are so passionate. You're wonderful. And I'm so excited to be here with you today. Perfect. Thank you. Thank and you. to get things started, I like to start with rapid fire questions to get to know you more on a personal level. Okay, great. Languages have played a huge part in your life. What is actually your favorite language? Oh, that's a great question. I love that question. You know, I must say, I guess, nearest and dearest to my heart is Spanish because I must say I had the best year, the most amazing year of my life, the year I lived in Spain. I lived in Cordoba, Spain, and it was interesting. It was it was a million years ago. It was 1985, 86, and when I moved there, Virtually no one spoke English. And it was really pre-globalization. And I just went there. It was Andalusia. And I threw myself in. And I, I remember what happened. The first month, I was frustrated. I was in tears. I had taken about six, seven years of Spanish in, in school back in uh, Canada, Toronto, where I was growing up. Got to Spain. And it was all like mumbo jumbo. I didn't understand it. Then after about a month, it clicked I thought, wow, I'm speaking, I, I can think in Spanish, I'm dreaming in Spanish, I love Spanish, and then I just had the most amazing year there, and I just love the people in Spain. I love Cordoba, I love Andalusia, and I love Spain, so I would have to say Spanish. Nice. So if there was a movie about your life, who should play you? Oh, wow, what a wonderful question. Okay. <laughs> okay. I have to think of the right actress. Oh, boy. Okay. Who would I love to play me? Oh, gosh. There's so many amazing women out there. Boy, that, that's a tough one because anyone I think of, they're all much more beautiful than I am. So I feel a little silly saying that perhaps, boy, Katie Holmes, Natalie Portman. I'm thinking of people who you know have the same coloring as me, who I love, but... Boy, that's an awesome question. I'm going to think more about that one. That's great. Fabulous question. And I already called you out as a role model. Who is one of your role models? I, I have so many. Whenever there's a question about who my mentor is, I don't, I don't have one. I mean, my parents were my biggest and, and still are my biggest mentors role models. And, and I talk about that a lot in my upcoming book. I learned from them. I learned values from them early on and, and the way they live their lives and the way what they taught me. So they are both role models. But then in business and in life, I, I look at so many people who've accomplished wonderful things, whether it's Oprah, who, you know, out of nothing, what she did. And, you know, it all comes back to being interested and empathetic and curious and and uh, connecting with people. But I mean, there, there are just so many people out there. What I do when it comes to who do I want to emulate, it's, it's not one person. I, I watch all different people and I take a little from this one and a little from that one. And, and yes, so many people to, to emulate. So a lot of role models out there. And because you were mentioning your parents, how would your family and friends describe you in one word? Ooh, in one word. Okay. <laughs> well, I guess they might say motivated or focused. 
I think those two, maybe that's two different words, but it's the idea of whatever I'm doing, I just really throw myself into it. I'm all in. And I get a little obsessed about it. I get addicted to it. And and I find during that period of time what it is. People might ask me questions. I might talk to people and I'm always coming back to what that issue is. If I'm talking to someone or how I'm spending my time, it's all in on that thing, whatever it is, whether it's my company, whether it's my book, whether it's my kids, I get kind of obsessed and addicted, addicted and focused. And so I guess that's one thing. I guess another thing people might say is curious because I do ask an awful lot of questions and, and my kids give me a hard time. They're like, mom, you ask too many questions, but I, I'm genuinely curious about people, about learning new things. And, and I think a lot of people are, and I, I love it when people are curious and they ask me questions too. You know, isn't it wonderful to be around people who are just always asking questions? I mean, I, I, meet, I meet a lot of people like that and I, I love that. Totally agree. Yeah. You were just mentioning being focused, being motivated. What is the one quality you really appreciate in leaders? Yes, well... Being curious is and always wanting to learn more, always wanting to learn more. And then, yes, being being incredibly focused and really kind of, you know, this is something else I talk about in my book, but owning it, you know, treating the company like they own it, whether they do or not. Right. Because usually, you know, obviously, if it's a private company, there are not a lot of owners. There may only be one owner, but Every leader acting as if they own it, owning the project, owning the client, owning the company. So I think that's super important. And then also want, caring about their people, wanting to develop their people, making it all about their people's success. I think that's incredibly important in leaders. Uh, and then, of course, another important thing is coming to their boss with ideas. I mean, being innovative, being proactive, because obviously anybody can just follow rules and carry out what's asked of them. But the real leaders and the best leaders are the ones who are continually innovating, coming up with new ideas, being proactive. So I think that is critical to being a great leader. And say, do you still remember what you wanted to become when you were a little girl? It's interesting. When I was little, I thought about, I was a romantic and I thought about getting married and having kids. I think in my early twenties, I think that's just how I thought. I read a lot and you know, that was, that was kind of what women did back then. But then when I went off to college, when I was 17, I remember I thought, okay, I want to be a lawyer. I think that's a good career. So I ended up taking a course my first semester freshman year of college, first year of college, called The Legal History of Race Relations, which I thought sounded like a, a very interesting course. And it was. The subject was, but I learned from taking that course and reading the cases and writing the briefs and mock the mock court that we did, I realized this is not for me. I, I don't think I want to be a lawyer. And then what happened is I thought, What do I want to study? I need to think of something practical because I need to have a good career. You know, it's all about being independent, being financially independent and being able to pay my own bills. I was brought up that way. My parents instilled that in me, that I needed to be, not be dependent on anybody myself, not a man, not a parent, not a sibling, no one. So, so the answer is I ended up loving languages so much and 
and I had studied four languages by the time I had gone to college, but I thought, what do you do with languages? And I remember I called my father and I said, I love languages, but I don't know what I'm going to do with them. And he said, don't worry about it. Follow your passion, do what you love and the rest will take care of itself. So I scrapped the idea of becoming an attorney and going to law school. I majored in languages and then I thought, okay, you know, and then, then of course I finished college and, you know, in response to your question about what I wanted to do, then I ended up, you know, doing what I did next, which I could get into, but I knew I loved business because I had had many jobs in my teenage years, some of which were in offices. And I thought business was very interesting, but I wanted to, if I could somehow incorporate my language skills and, and that's ended up leading to what I, what I did. But the answer is I didn't know early on what I wanted to do. I did not. I only knew what I, what my passions were, which is so common with people, right? People have their hobbies, yes. their passions. Often they don't know what on earth they will do with them. And you were just mentioning jobs as a teenager. What's the first job that you got paid for? The very first job. I remember it well. I was, well, <laughs> There were two. There were two that kind of happened simultaneously. One was babysitting, which so many people do. I was 10. I was 10. And at the same time, co coinciding with that, I got a job walking a child to school. I was in grade five, fifth grade, and he was in grade two or second grade. And I, we lived in the same building. And I remember getting paid to walk him to school. So that was a big deal when I was 10 and he was seven along wow. with a babysitting job. So those were the first two that happened kind of simultaneously. And say, what is one thing that people often get wrong about you? Well, that's a good question. I think I try to be, and I do my best and I know I'm far from perfect. I do so many things wrong on a, <laughs> on a daily basis, but I try to be, I try to be nice to people. I'm a bit on the one hand of a pleaser, but I'm incredibly competitive. I like to, I like to do well. And that's why I said, you know, earlier it's focus, it's intensity, it's addiction, it's obsession. And I throw myself into things in order to, to be the best, to win, you know? And yeah, you know, I think, you know, in this day and age, sometimes people don't want to talk about winning. I think it's very important. I mean, I, or for me, it is, you know, not look like I'm so competitive. I mean, by the way, I act, but in the end, I'm intensely competitive and I love winning. So that's maybe what people may not see at first glance. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Do you also do any sports? I play a little, I swear, the sports I play are not team sports, but I, I have, I ski, although I haven't skied much recently, but I ski and I do remember, yeah, skiing growing up. I love water skiing. Uh, I swim now. I like hiking. I play a little tennis, but These are all for fun at these, this point. Okay. I had had the vision of you running a marathon. Uh, I just had the picture. <laughs> really? Oh my yes. God. Yes. You know, I, sh right. And a lot of people, all my friends do, and I, I so admire them because the way I get my exercise is I walk and, and I hike. I hike when it fits into the schedule. Make, make myself walk at least five miles a day because I have to, to get my exercise. But I... All these people in my life, you know, friends and, and 
people I've met who run marathons, I'm just like, how do they do that? So I so admire people who do that. And one last question for the rapid fire. What is the best advice you've been given in your personal or in your professional life? When I was younger, it was to be independent, to not rely on anyone else. And, and you know, as I mentioned, I, I really have incorporated that into my life. And, and incredibly independent. And I like it that way. And I think people need to be because I think what happens if they're not, they can't follow their dreams. They can't do what they want to do because they are beholden to someone. They are answering to someone. If you make sure you, you can take care of yourself financially, for example, and are independent, you don't need anybody for anything, then you can really be true to yourself and follow your own dreams. So I think that was good advice. As far as now, at this stage of my life, I think, you know, this might be a bit cliche, but don't worry about what anyone else thinks. Just worry about what you want, what's important to you, and being true to yourself. Because you care a lot more than they do, and you deserve to 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 be, follow your dreams and not try to please everyone else. And um, I think that's wonderful advice as well. Yes. And with that, I think it's time to learn more about you and how you got to where you, where you are today. Could you please share the key milestones? So growing up, I was fortunate enough to live in five countries and study four languages, as I may have mentioned. And, and so when I was little, I lived first in the U.S., then in Portugal, then in Canada, then in Spain, then in Venezuela. And I was able to live and study and work in these countries and study four languages, which I loved. As I mentioned, that, that's a passion. The favorite, it's the Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is. You're so right. It's, it's just my heart is with Spanish, with Spanish and Spain. Um, but they're all great. Okay. And so then that was my, a milestone, living in those places and studying those languages. And then I was incredibly fortunate because after college, I was able to get have a job in New York. I was actually passing through New York on my way to Washington, D.C., thinking I might do something international in Washington, D.C. And I just when I was visiting my sister, she mentioned a translation company and she said they may be looking for people. And I needed a job. I had just come back from four months in Venezuela after graduating from college. And I called them up and I was able to interview and get a job there. So that was a big milestone event in my life in the sense that I worked there for three years and I was able to learn the translation industry. And I absolutely loved it. It was the perfect way to combine language and business. And this was in 1987 when it was really pre-globalization there. I mean, it was or the very early stages of it. So it might, the timing was right. And this was a major milestone because while I loved the business and the industry, I thought, I think it can be done better. I saw a gap between what was available in the industry as far as the types of companies that were out there and what clients needed. I felt like they needed a company that provided top of the line service along the lines of a top tier investment bank or law firm and the highest quality. And, you know, back then this company did a good job, but it was, it was about 90 people, nine zero, and it was the largest in the world at the time. And the others were mom and pop, moms and pop, mom and pop companies. So that was a milestone because I realized I love this industry, but I think it could be done better because I saw, you know, issues there. Then I guess the next milestone was shortly, I went back to school, got my MBA and right after graduating, I did end up getting a job 
where I thought I would try out finance. And it was doing equity arbitrage at a French bank. And I thought, well, this could be a way to use my MBA, where I majored in finance and international business, and you know, learn learn about finance and and make some money, save some money, and and figure out if if I like this. But basically, as soon as I got there, I did experience. First of all, I, I learned it just wasn't for me. I experienced sexism. I did. I was the only woman in my role, kind of this entry level analyst. I mean, right? Who you know? And what happened is, whenever the phone rang, the guys would yell, "Liz." phone. <laughs> so like I, as though I was the one to answer it because I was the woman, because there were other men in my Duh. role. Yeah. And, and they didn't even necessarily have their MBA. I was the woman. So, you know, between that and then when I said, I finished my work early because I would work intensely, you know, I mentioned that focus. I was intense and I said to my boss, what else can I do? And he said, well, you can go look at supply, look in the supply closet, see what we need. And, and then ask all the guys what they need. And again, it was not what hired to do. And I understand in a relatively small environment, you do whatever is asked, but there were certain things that were being asked of me. It was clear because I was the woman, the woman in that role. So anyway, I realized even aside from that, I didn't have the kind of passion for the work I was doing, it was a lot of numbers and spreadsheets. And I had loved the translation industry. And as I mentioned, I thought it could be done better. And I had thought I would first get some experience, save some money, and then perhaps do something entrepreneurial later. But I quickly realized the number crunching, the spreadsheets, the, the paper, just the filling out the different forms without connecting with the people and the language did excite me. So I realized if I don't like this environment, I want to go and create my own. You know, if I don't like playing in this sandbox, I'm going to go and play in another and create another. And so that made me start my company. And so that was the job that was the milestone for starting my company. And my goal was to build it into my dream company, basically the largest language solutions company in the world. And so that, you know, those milestones really are what led me to to creating my company. I did that in 1992, a million years ago, over 30 years ago, did it for 26 years. And then after a lot of drama, particularly at the end, particularly in the last five or six years, I I moved on and was able to create my foundation where not only am I not so much focused on creating my dream company. Now I'm I think to focus on creating a dream world, right? Dream world, like basically making it so everybody is treated the same. And obviously I know I'm not going to make that happen with my foundation, but I work on addressing inequities between among people, you know, making, making it so women are treated better, making it so marginalized populations are treating, treated better and just addressing all the different issues. And the longer I've been doing it, the more issues I realize there are to address. Everybody who's involved is making an impact and I'm so, you know, honored to be associated with it. And and it's exciting and it's interesting and it's, it's just very rewarding. This is so, so impressive. And I have a thousand questions. So I'm like, where should I start? (laughs) One thing that's top of mind is now this drive to fight inequality. Is that linked to the sexism that you experienced in your journey or where is that coming from? That's a terrific question. So, yes, I mean, it's interesting. 
it started there because that was the first time I really did experience it. And then in my 26 years, my company, I definitely experienced it, whether it was people when the company was small that I and my partner were meeting with, and they assumed that because I was the woman, I was the assistant. And even though I was the one who had had all the experience, you know, and that's on or, but then I saw issues with how women were treated, you know, at, at my company, at other companies. And I thought this is not okay. And I, you know, I realized, wow, this is something I want to work on because we still have a long way to go in spite of being in a better place than we were 30 years ago when I started my company, there's still much work to be done. And I saw it with how women were treated, both inside and outside of the company, and how others, our other marginalized populations were treated. And, you know, I just also feel, of course, like we all feel when you're fortunate enough to have a certain level of success, it's the least you can do. I mean, nobody deserves it more than anyone else. And some people just had better opportunities. And I certainly did. So I think, you know, it's time to give back. But yes, I saw issues with it, as I said, from that that first job right out of business school. That was really where I started seeing it. And then, you know, through the years after that. And one thing I was wondering, because you've been so hugely successful, is there a point in this success where people stop treating you differently? In the beginning, you were, say, seen as the assistant, but Did that stop at some point or was it till the very end? The truth of the matter is, even at the very end, I saw issues. I think it can be very hard for women leaders. It can, at any level, whether they're, you know, middle manager leaders or in the C-suite or, yes, I I saw issues absolutely as as co-CEO and and founder or co-founder and co-CEO. Absolutely. The whole way along. Wow. I did. I did. And that's, that's why I think we need to work with women at all, all levels, you know, just because women are founders of companies or uh, the CEOs, they still necessarily are not necessarily treated in the same way. And, and there's systemic issues that still are not set up right. I mean, we still don't have family leave that we have in other countries, right? I mean, things like that that need to be addressed. And of course, that applies to everybody at all levels. So there's still a lot of work to be done. And and I saw it no matter what level I was at, and even no matter how large my company was. It certainly got easier because when you have a multi-thousand person company, I think you are going to get more respect. But But I still saw that, you know, it wasn't so much me, but I saw it Women, for the women at my company or at other yes. companies. Yes. And that's not okay because we want to make sure they stay at those companies and they stay in those roles and then they get promoted to the next one. So yes. And then yeah. you always read about yes. women. They don't have any ambitions. Like it's their own fault. <laughs> right. Right. It's not still not set up for them and it needs to be so that they can stay and they feel good staying. Absolutely. You're so right. And you've been so successful. When did you have this ha moment? Ooh, I made it. I felt very fortunate along the way because I I was, you know, I was fortunate with my timing because when we started the company, it was really the beginning of the globalization of business. So that helped. And then we were fortunate to find incredible people who kept taking a help, helping us go to the next level. 
I think it was exciting when I saw the company was growing, but I, the truth is I never feel like, I never felt like I made it. Like I'm done. There's nothing left to do. That's sorry. That's a shorter answer to your question. And that's the truth because sometimes my kids say to me, you know, mom, why don't you just stop what you're doing? Go take a break, sleep late. But I feel like, yes, I accomplished a, you know, a good amount with my company. And now I want to take what I've learned and apply it to the next thing so I can make more of a difference. So I feel like I'm not there yet. There's more to be done. I truly feel that way. And I love it. I enjoy it. It keeps life interesting. And, you know, it's nice to feel like maybe I could be making some impact beyond myself and even beyond my company. And so, uh, and beyond my clients. I mean, there's yes. more work to be done for women, for marginalized populations, and just fighting things, you know, other issues that don't only apply to women in marginalized populations, be it gun safety, hunger, you know, the name of gun safety or hunger. But, but in answer to your question, I will say one thing that was very fulfilling as far as making it is my goal the whole 26 years since I started TransPerfect was to make it the largest language solutions company in the world. And what was really nice is we accomplished that goal in 2017. We had the highest revenue in the industry. And, you know, we always were kind of at the top or among the top as far as profit, but the highest revenue in the industry in 2017. And I thought, we did it. And then I, I sold in 2018. So that was very fulfilling more because it was, it was like, okay, that was a big goal and it was goal accomplished. So that was helpful in making me feel like I made it, you know, in terms of that goal. And then, of course, more work to be done outside of TransPerfect. But that was very fulfilling on the making it part. It took them 25 years to reach that goal of making it the biggest company. How, how did you keep going? Because I hear there's quite some resilience in there. Yes, you're right. You're right. Because when we started, by the way, I mean, there were 10,000 translation companies out there, which people find it very difficult to believe because I remember I did the research. I looked at, you know, industry reports and all that. But the reason there were so many is they averaged about one to five people, like between one and five people. So they were started and run by, by translators who, and so they were mom and pops and the people owning the companies were so busy translating, they didn't have time to grow the company. Understandably, it's translation is an intense, labor intensive, high concentration kind of job. So, so anyway, but we were able to do that. But as far as your question, how did, how did we stick with it? I, I, I remember there were times when I think we felt like quitting. I felt like quitting because it was a hundred hours a week for a number of years. And it was about being obsessed and being addictive. And that's all I wanted to talk about. That's all I wanted to do. I definitely, I must say I had to, you know, sacrifice family time and friend time. And this, for me, it was in my twenties and thirties. And that's why I do recommend to people, if you can start when you're young, before you're married, before you have kids, because then your time is more your own and it's easier. But, and then I also say, one of my sayings is work today like no one else will so you can live and give tomorrow like no one else can. And that was how life was. But there were times when, you know, I felt like giving up, but I think I kept thinking, but I love this work and I want to accomplish this goal and there's nothing I'd rather be doing, but, but it's intense. And I think one of the keys for people is 
to, to really get, achieve that kind of success, you know, a very large company, thousands of people, that type of thing. You've got to be kind of all in, as I say, for a certain period of time, much like work today, like no one else will. So you can live tomorrow like no one else can and not get distracted by other things, whether it's this hobby or this is seeing these friends or seeing this family. I mean, you can, you need to, obviously you need some of that in your life. You do because no one can live without any of that, but you have to do more. You have to outwork the others for a period of time. And then what I did and what we did to make it more palatable was we had a wonderful culture at our company for many years where we were working with other smart, motivated overachievers. And so we would work intensely. And then maybe at night we would just, you know, go out together, have a drink, blow off some steam. And we had each other and our our, our coworkers were our social life as well. And I think that really helps too. And we really worked to create a company culture whereby people really enjoyed spending time with each other. And, and I, as an owner, thought of the, my, my people as my family, my, my work family, but they became my family. And you mentioned that sometimes there was this feeling, oh, I want to quit is too much. There's a lot. I assume going out with the work people, like with your family could help, but was there anything else that you did that helped you to get back on track? That's a great question. Sometimes it's as simple when you're pulling all nighter after all nighter, because in the early days, it was a lot of that going out, taking a walk, getting some fresh air. I think that has to, because you can't just sit there intensely for 12 hours, 14 hours. So whether it was taking a walk or I guess, Maybe I'm trying to think, you know, maybe going and working out, that would be a nice thing. I'm trying to think of things we did, I guess, now and then as time went on, maybe going on a little weekend trip <laughs> to really just get away from it, step away and not, you know, clear your head. I think that that was necessary. And as time went on, we were able to do that. So that helped because sometimes you just have to completely separate from it and then come back fresh. Of course, like anything, like when you're in school and you're studying, you must do that. So whether it was walking, exercising, traveling, you know, just in, in, a, in a, or, you know, seeing a friend, calling a friend, seeing family, calling family, those types of things. Nice. And what are your key ingredients for being this successful? And we have seen like you are competitive, you are intense, you're obsessed, addicted to a topic. But what helps you to really become who you are now? I think it comes back to something as kind of simple and unglamorous as goal setting with deadlines, mm -hmm. goals with deadlines. So basically saying, okay, I, I want this year, our first year in business to sell $250,000. And of course I'm speaking in dollars, but whatever currency you're dealing with, but yes, a certain revenue amount. And then, okay, working backwards, how do I need to get there? And whether it's, I mean, now it might be emails, it might be phone calls, it might be trade shows. Or, or these are Back then it was one thing. Now maybe it more relates to social media. But setting, for us, when we started, it was literally mass mailing and sending out letters and sending out 300 letters a day and making 300 phone calls a day and not letting ourselves Buy, you know, get by without doing that. But And then it was goals like you know, revenue goals, like, okay, as I said, the revenue is 250, 
whatever, $1,000 a year, 20 some thousand dollars a month. Okay, how do we get there? But another thing related to the goals and the deadlines is, like, for example, when we started hiring people, saying things like, okay, we will hire you to open an office, and if you sell X amount for three consecutive months, you get to bring in an assistant. And if the two of you sell Y amount for three consecutive months, you get to bring in another, a third person. And if you sell Z amount for three consecutive months, you bring in this. And that's how we, we built offices and over a hundred offices with people goals and revenue such that, that if, if people accomplish that, they could add and grow their office. Another last thing on the goals with deadlines is saying, okay, we want a hundred offices at this company. So we're going to open one office each quarter. So, okay, we're going to open San Francisco in Q1. We're going to open Washington, D.C. in Q2. We're going to open, well, going outside the U.S., London in Q3 and, you know, Tokyo in Q4. And basically not not letting ourselves get through the year without it, but goals with deadlines. Wow. Very important. And maybe let's make this more tangible for our audience. When you set those okay. goals, do you should you put them in writing? Would you recommend an accountability partner? Yes. So I'm a big believer in both those things, actually putting them in writing, just outlining all the, the key metrics and, and putting them in writing and doing it ideally per, I mean, perhaps per day, but definitely per week, per month, per year. Uh, and then sharing them with other people, having an accountability partner. I think that's a wonderful way to go about it. So I think those great things to do. And I think I really truly believe a lot of people don't do that. And if they did, they would more likely accomplish their goals. And I see that as well, that many people don't do that. And I feel the first part of the equation, what you're saying, dream big. I think, I think sometimes yeah. that's missing that if you don't know what you want to achieve, why you want to achieve it, like this feeling of purpose, this is also what propels you to go after it, to know what you want. And if you don't have that, why would you even bother? You're right. So the big goal is so important. Yes. Where do you want yeah. to end up? And I think, you know, and part of why I called my book Dream Big is because I think people, why shouldn't they dream big, right? If you're going to dream, you may as well make it big, a big dream. And then you're likely to accomplish more because you're going to do more to 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 make your dream happen. And you'll at least, if you don't reach the moon, at least you're going to get closer to it. And And why not? Because that's when it gets fun, when you're not just going through motions, but when you're really creating something that makes an impact that people, you know, that can be shared with people. So yes, I, I agree. But yes, defining what your goal is at the outset is so incredibly important. So yes, completely agree with you on that. And you mentioned initially that you are, when you were sharing the story, when you were calling up your dad on the, what you wanted to study, that your dad said, follow your passion and your passion was language. Yes. I feel that was really a big, big gift from your dad that he let you go after what you really enjoyed. You're right. Because a lot of people I encounter feel like they need to pursue whatever it is, you know, this career or that, because it's safe, because their parents were more comfortable with it, because they wanted to make sure they could pay the bills. They were being caring parents, but in the process... People didn't like what they did. They, yeah, they were not happy. They were not successful because their heart wasn't in it. 
And, you know, I think it's wonderful. I was incredibly fortunate that my parents encouraged me to pursue my dreams. So, yes, absolutely. And I think everybody should. I mean, we all should pursue our dreams and just find a way to, of course, make them attached to making money, to bringing in revenue. And and I think so often with creating a company, it's not about coming up with a new idea because I'm not the most creative person. I'm one of the least creative people, but it just finding problems with how it's done and think, okay, this could be a way to do it better. And something can always be done a little bit differently and better. And so that's the key. If unless you, unless you have, you know, the next uh, Uber or Airbnb, right. And last question on your journey. When you look now back, is there anything you wish you had done differently? Oh, yes. All the time. <laughs> okay. Well, one of the things I talk about in my book is, is, and I know why we didn't, we started really with no money, no money. We were just out of business school. And so we didn't, we didn't hire an accountant. We didn't hire an attorney. We didn't have the money to pay for them. But I think everybody, when you're starting a company, you need to set it up properly and hire an accountant and hire an attorney. And then if you have a partner, which I did, we were 50-50 partners, you need a proper shareholders agreement. And in our case, we didn't have one. And then a couple of years into it, we couldn't agree on actually doing one. I, I, you know, so that was a problem. And then the other challenge we had is we were 50-50 owners. And when I speak about entrepreneurship now, I, I say it's hard to be 50-50 owners. Very hard when it, there isn't a clear decision maker, right? Because you, there is a lot of, op- there, you know, there will be a lot of disagreements. And perhaps if neither, if you're happy being 50-50 owners and you have a tiebreaker, maybe that's okay. I wouldn't do it that way. I would be, if I were doing it again, I would be the majority owner, you know, at least 50.1%. And I do recommend that to people because in our case, being 50-50 and not agreeing on a shareholders agreement and not agreeing on a board so that there was a tiebreaker made it. So we had a lot of challenges in our partnership. And that's what ultimately made it. So we had to part ways. So I recommend people be the majority owner and have a shareholders agreement. And that those are, those were, you know, key lessons I learned. And I would certainly do it that way next time. And I recommend that to everybody who, who is starting a company. The time is flying. So I only have a few more questions left. Sure. What is coming up next for you? I know there's the book. When is it coming out actually? So it's coming out September 26th, but it is on, on sale now on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Wiley. So yeah, so I'm excited about that. Um, very excited to share some of the lessons I learned because I mentioned, you know, the one about the 50-50 and the shareholders agreement, but I, I did a lot of things wrong and I learned a lot of lessons. So, so um, I share them in my book and along with the book, lots of events and speaking about the book, speaking more about entrepreneurship, which I love. And then just more philanthropy, more, more initiatives related to the causes I'm involved in. So, so that's exciting too. And say for this show, who else should I have as a guest? There are so many women out there. Yeah. That I would recommend And I'm trying to think, I want to give you some good names. I'll tell you who Joan Hornig who is fabulous, Lydia Finette, Elisa Licht, Julia Borston, and Candace Nelson, to name a few. 
Perfect. But there are so many amazing women out there doing such terrific inspirational work. And so I think they, any of them would be terrific. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. I will ask you for the introduction afterwards. Sure. And for the listeners who want to stay in touch with you, of course, they should pre-order your book, Dream Big and Win, Translating Passion into Purpose and Creating a Billion Dollar Business. I'm also curious to read it. So they should do that. How else can they stay in touch with you? Thank you so much, Hannah. Yes. Okay. Well, I have my website, which is lizelting.com. I have my foundation website, which elizabethelchingfoundation.org. And either of those, there is an email link on both of those. My LinkedIn is linkedin.com Liz Elting. And Instagram, I'm at Liz Elting. And Facebook, I'm Liz Elting. And Twitter, at Liz Elting. So all of those ways. I would love to be in contact with any of you. That would be wonderful. Perfect. With that, I thank you so much for taking the time today. Like the past 50 minutes have been just flying away in no time. So thank you so much. And I think if you like, come back in fall when your book is actually out to, 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 to buy. I would love to see you again here. Thank you. I would love that, Hannah. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun speaking with you. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And since you're still listening, in case you have not yet subscribed to the show, Please do so wherever you listen to your podcasts. This way, you will get the next episode in your inbox when it drops on Tuesday. With that, we are done for today. We are one step closer to reaching your goals. Talk to you guys next week. Bye.